You have the acid. Yeah. Get in the back. I gotta get to a fucking phone, man. I gotta warn my family. If they call that fucking stupid girl's number back, if she's with the cops, then I'm fucked, bro. They might trick my mom into saying something stupid like I, like I called her earlier. Fuck, man. Lay down. We're going to his house. Lay down. Make yourself invisible. Okay, so joining me for, uh, well, this is a very uh, fun-loving movie about uh, brothers who really care about each other. Uh, Very decent individuals that would do anything for one another, uh, never cross over into crime. Uh, I have author Chris Vanderkay with me to talk about uh, Good Time. So, uh, Chris, thank you for uh, joining me on the show. I am delighted to be here, Michael. Thank you for finding what can certainly be described as an unusual pairing. Yeah. For my first time out. Yeah, we're, we're going to be talking about, uh, as I said, with Good Time, probably something that, at least in film circles, people are more familiar with, because uh, I think this one came out was two years ago, 2017 film. I think it was, yeah, 2017. Um, and I'm sort of late to the game on it. Uh, I don't know about yourself. I just recently watched it just for this podcast, but it had been in my queue for probably since 2017. Yeah, I have a very good friend that has been chasing me for about a year and a half. I caught up with it a few months ago, but it had been a while. Literally since release, he'd been hounding me to watch it. And I'm, I'm glad that uh, I, I finally did it uh, for two reasons, because I'm glad to talk about it here. But it was the, the trailer did not do it justice for what ultimately ended, I ended up getting. I thought it was a much more interesting and in-depth film than the trailer led me to believe. Uh, it's always good when I have a, a guest on that's like, you know, not saying, wow, that was a real waste of time. Thanks, Mike, for <laughs> bringing me on for that one. Um, but yeah, apparently we run in similar circles because I also was sort of hounded by other uh, film Twitter people. Like, you've not seen that yet, so now I've I've made good with that. Uh, but the other one that uh, I don't really think would be too familiar to, to most people uh, because it's not been in the conversation the last two years that I'm aware of is a <laughs> 1964 film starring Jack Lemmon called Good Neighbor Sam. And you're pretty much the uh, the reason that I watched this one because when we were messaging about doing something podcast-related, uh, you mentioned that uh, Jack Lemmon is one of your favorite uh, performers. So I was trying to figure out something like, please God, did Jack Lemmon star in something with the uh, – good in the title and <laughs> he is very reliable that way so i found something but i knew nothing about it what, what about yourself yeah i i consider myself to be a lemon fan and this has been apparently a, a chink in my armor i didn't uh <laughs> i didn't even know well not that i didn't know that it existed but i certainly didn't know that it was so easy to acquire streaming so should have gotten to it before now so you've done me a favor here okay all right so far so far so good um so yeah, the, the the reason we're kind of doing this weird uh, mashup is I think we'll we'll actually get into something as far as there's different uh, different uh, ways both films approach deceit <laughs> and trying to do uh, I guess a favor for a friend or to protect your family. Um, but yeah, they're they're not going to be probably uh, on most double features, which is what we like to do on this this podcast. But before we get too far into that, why don't you tell people a little bit about uh, what you do? You're you're an author and you're also involved uh, in uh, films in various ways. So if you'd like to point people to some of your work, uh, feel free to do so. Oh sure. Well, uh, the easiest way to keep track of me is probably on Twitter. Uh, my handle is ck vanderk, and um, my last name is. V-A-N-D-E-R-K-A-A-Y. People can never find me. It's Dutch. I don't know why there's two A's, but apparently it means <laughs> from the river, something like that. All right. But, uh, but anyway, that's how you keep track of me on Twitter. But yeah, I've uh, written several books on the history and philosophy of film uh, with my co-writer and wife, Kathleen Fernandez. Uh, I recently put out my first fiction book, which I worked on with Wayne Klingman's called Bones Beneath the Pale. And I recently, um, pretty excited about having started working with a streaming online channel called uh, Mascot TV, which you can get on Roku, you can get on Apple TV. You can watch it straight on uh, the computer. But it's sort of – we call it like uh, the masterpiece theater of exploitation cinema. A uh, lot of old films, a lot of public domain stuff, but we try to find the best copies we can and share with people. We've been producing some original content, did a whole month of uh, uh, marathons for Halloween, and we finally got some original programming that we're creating. So I'm pretty excited about that as well. I actually was checking some of that uh, out through through your account uh, some of the introductions you've done, and I have for another podcast 
uh, House on Haunted Hill uh, coming up. And so I, I saw that you have an introduction for that one, and you make mention of the uh, the remake, which is actually what we'll be talking about on that particular show. Uh, so I really like the the style of mascot TV, and I guess like your uh, the way you're sort of uh, cultivating a certain a certain type of film fan. Some really cool stuff on there. So uh, I definitely think people should should check that out. I I wonder like. With those type of films, uh, if I've gone the wrong direction with Good Neighbor Sam, because at first I thought I was being, <laughs> I was being cool, like with something like you know something catering to you. Mm-hmm. Hey, honey, guess what? Where are you, man? You don't think I'm crazy. We're going to celebrate the most wonderful thing happened today. It's amazing. I went into the office, you know, and I was going to ask for a... You must be Sam. I'm Miss friend, Janet. Janet Lagerlof. Uh, how do you do? How do you do? Lagerlof. I, I mean, Lagerlof is only my, my maiden name. I, still my divorce is final, I am still Mrs. Howard Ebbets. Oh, uh, how do you do, Mrs. Ebbets? How do you Ebbets? do? Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Well, look, uh, I don't want to disturb your shower. Uh, can I uh, get you anything? So, no, no, thank you. I have everything. Washcloth. Well, make yourself at home. I don't know if that one would appear on uh, at least the mascot TV stuff that I've, I've seen, uh, just perusing that list, but um, it's... Definitely, um, <laughs> definitely, uh, sort of like unheralded work. Uh, I don't know if if you how much research you did on Good Neighbor Sam, but I I couldn't find too much about it other than like, well, Jack Lemmon was in it, and there were some hijinks, and uh, that's about it. Yeah, I mean, I did. I, I I will say I did a cursory examination of uh, of what was out there, and yeah, I was surprised to find there's not a whole lot of coverage, considering it was apparently it did fairly well when it came out, and it I I think Jack Lemmon was nominated for a BAFTA for this movie. Hmm. So. It's very, you know, it's very situational comedy stuff that I think now, uh, and probably quickly even then, uh, you would just find more on television. Certain scenarios you would find in place uh, with with neighbors and other couples, and uh, you know, just these sort of uh, really, I, I don't want to say contrived in a negative way, but definitely like contrived situations uh, that are there to to lend itself to you know uh, comedy where the, the characters are punished in some way for these little white lies that just continue to accumulate. Oh, um, for sure. So maybe we will get some of the people who like good time to be like, what the hell is this? But I just want to preface before we get deep into it, that they are not the same genre of film at all. Yeah. So. They're, they're very different. <laughs> if you're looking, if you're looking for something with crime, you get your first one. If you're looking at something more like a, an Italian sex comedy, mm. uh, that's sort of there the arena go. we're going for the second one. All right, so we'll we'll start with good time just because I assume anyone listening, um, you know, if they if they have interest in Good Neighbor Sam, they may have to like dip out of this podcast because uh, they'd have to watch it first. And as you said, it is available. I watched it. I rented it through uh, iTunes uh, earlier this afternoon. And uh, good time, though, I believe as of this recording, I think is still streaming. You know, free ish if you have an Amazon Prime account. Um, but that's the one I think people will be clicking on. So. Both of us are, are coming late to it, and the I had a, uh, a a family member really that lives in New York that um, works with the uh, the screenwriter and the editor of this film, um, and so he he actually was telling me about it um, like as you know before it came out, and um, it was just sort of like probably the best way you could describe it, I think was like it's really it's a really good, like, interesting movie about people that I would never want to surround myself with. <laughs> <And that's, laughs> so he set me up for like, I was like, oh, okay, so we're we're dealing with like the worst of the worst. And I was a little bit caught off guard with what, what I think that's it is accurate. Like, this is a low level criminal 
that really is fueled by this this sense of honor and doing right by his brother that uh he has he's not tricked but he has definitely drafted him into his his schemes and then the first sequence this uh bank robbery that uh for i don't know about five seconds looks like <laughs> it has gone well <laughs> and then the rest of the film is uh you know not only how it has not worked out but how there are continuous problems that, that spin off from that um so i the closest thing i could come to was like it's very much in that vein not as light or silly but it's something like uh, scorsese's like after hours where it's just like out of the frying pan into the fire type thing where you're just seeing yeah. things get progressively worse. Uh, but you also have a, like a very, very capable guy who's able to think on his feet, but he's just never able to get like too far uh, ahead as far as accomplishing what they initially set out to do, which was to make some money and to get away scot-free. So I, I could see how this film could be frustrating to some people uh, as far as the, the type of man you're following with the main character of Robert Pattinson. Did you, did you have any issues with the, you know, the type of people that the uh, Safdie brothers are choosing for us to like, you know, spend so much time on here? Well, I, I mean, first of all, I found him compelling. So for me, that's, that's enough. I, I don't necessarily have to find them likable, but I liked your comparison to after hours because there is some sort of almost like a, Greek level mythological tragedy to the circumstances they continue to go through similarly to after hours where it's just like Sisyphus pushing the rock and then it just falls down. You know, the minute that they think that they've got one leg up, this other thing sort of crashes down on top of them. Um, but the, the Scorsese film I thought of while watching this is actually mean streets um, in the sense that there is, like you said, one guy that's sort of put together his life is pretty good. And, and another one, who is struggling in this, in the case of mean streets, obviously it's his own fault. Uh, but in, and in, in, this film, I think there's a much more uh, – you have much more of an emotional connection to the guy who's troubled in this story because it's clear that he has uh, some either psychological or developmental problems. And I thought it was interesting that um, the motivation for the film is really to help that guy. So you're willing to go along with a journey with a character who's not super likable because you want him ultimately to be able to help the character that is likable. Yeah, you don't necessarily obviously like agree with um... – the, the way he's trying to go about it. And it does have that, that pipe dream mentality where like, it, I think if they're successful, it's mentioned that they're just going to go like live off uh, out in the woods, like away from, away from people. But then you, you look at these guys and in particular, the, the character of Connie played by Pattinson. And you're like, I don't, I don't know. Like how much experience does he have? Like, you know, when he just says we're going to go live off somewhere, does he actually believe it? Um, like it, I, I never get a firm grasp on if he actually thought that things were, were going to work out. Cause it doesn't appear that either one of their lives have been, uh, easy or that they've been successful. Like the, the fact that they've been pushed this point and that Pattinson's character is able to think on his feet so well when it comes to, uh, being deceitful or taking advantage of, of people, like when he needs a favor, uh, I can't imagine that if he can handle that with such, ease or grace that this is not like something that's it's indicative that he's lived his pretty much his entire life that way with being somewhat deceitful and selfish. Yeah. I, I almost get the vibe off of him. It's like, he seems like a resourceful character within the confines of what we're watching in this movie. But I think the funny thing about that is that, that he's only clever in the sense that he knows how to immediately get himself mm. out of the most damning of trouble right yeah. then. But he doesn't really seem to have any sort of, like you said, any forward momentum. Or I, I mean, it was really sad. I laughed, but it was sort of a hollow laugh at the point where when they had the money, like you said, just before everything goes wrong, I think his line was something like, let's go to Virginia Beach. Like, that's the big dream, <laughs> was to yeah. go to Virginia Beach. Yeah, this is not uh, Danny Ocean and crew here. <laughs> this is where everything's been calculated to the second, and uh, they know exactly how to hide their money. Uh, it is very low level, very, very blue collar in that way. Uh, I, I think it's, it would be like, and you can speak, I mean, you're, you're an author, so you can speak to this more, but it's, it's a, the equivalent of like a, uh, sort of beach read page turner to me where you're just like, I think you, you're putting the headspace of Connie where everything is so short term, where whatever is the sort of rock in front of him, like blocking his path, you just want to see immediately how he'll get out of that room or how he'll handle that one person without really thinking too much about like, okay, so if he success successfully navigates around this one thing, what is that next step? And we're, we're talking about like practical matters of like, you know, in one, one sequence, it's how do I get 
this person who's under police surveillance out of a hospital. Okay, I'm going to take <laughs> the bus. Then when we get on the bus, where are we going? <laughs> and I, the movie swept me up but successfully in that way where I was just like, okay, thank God we got on the bus. And then I'm like catching up about the time that the characters, it's like, okay, so wait, what now? And um, it, it definitely like, it has me like wanting, like there's no way that I would just sort of like pause this movie and be like, I'll come back to it later. That sort of thing. It, it has that sort of adrenaline rush to it, which is strange for a crime movie because there's not, really like that much in the way of violence there's the threat of violence but it's not it's not like you get a sequence like in in heat with that particular bank robbery where you're just going to unload like you know uh an arsenal of bullets like in this this big fight with the uh, cops and like a SWAT team or anything yeah in a way i think though it's not played it's it's played with a straight face throughout the whole film i think this might be the darkest comedy i've ever watched because hmm. it's a crime drama but everything about it is in some ways so sad, weird, or desperate that it becomes humorous just because of the circumstance. Like you said, the only action sequences in the movie, they're never fighting someone else. One guy falls through a plate glass window. We have a car crash because the um, – the, uh, what is it? The, the – ink container inside of the money that they yeah, stole blows yeah. up in their face or uh you know that he gets in a fight with i guess we're spoiling he gets in a fight with the guy he took from the hospital who turns out to completely be the wrong mm -hmm. guy and so it, it, in a way it's almost as if you took the sisyphus legend which is that you know miserable uh thing happening over and over and you can't get out of that loop and it just becomes the world's darkest comedy in the same way that after hours um it's funny but it, like i'm not laughing at it i'm just sort of confused and um, admiring of how insane it is. That's how I feel about good time too. It's not obviously as over the top, but I, I just, every second of this movie, it just feels more and more like um, I, I, it's only after that I, I realized that I should have been laughing at it. Cause like I said, I, like you said, I'm along for the ride. You know, it's a very propulsive movie. It's not until the end that I look back and go, Jesus, that was ludicrous. The events of this film were absurd, you know? Yeah. And uh, you know, the, I guess mild spoiler here because I don't, I think I don't think the film catches you off guard where you're ever meant to think like okay everything is going to work out if you can just like right. so like he you know and pretty much all the characters that like kind of get swept up in that night something bad happens to them and they don't really get any further they like whatever they were trying to accomplish uh, be it the man who's sort of accidentally uh, you know broken out of the hospital uh, or certainly our main character uh, they. You know, they, they don't they don't move the needle one way or the other. And it, it's the only the characters who sort of stay out of this like one crazy night, like in particular his brother, may eventually, you know, be in, in a better place. But yeah, I that's why I said I wondered if people who are into like, you know, crime movies in particular, if they would after they got to the end of it, would they find it like really frustrating or annoying that they're not used to seeing like you know, used to seeing like a criminal like maybe gun down and so like I mentioned heat uh, which, you know, is an epic where it's like, you know, you come to understand and forgive the criminal because he has his own code there for how he does things. So like, you know, it, it's not a necessarily a happy ending in heat, but it's kind of played as some sort of like noble ending, like the, the, the fate that those characters meet. It's like, we're, we're come away okay with this. And I think with good time you can, and I think you should come away with it thinking like, well, that was just. That was just wasteful. <laughs> that was just like it's a it's an awful lot of effort to uh, come away with with nothing there. Like any goal that you had at the start of the film, uh, you're so far removed from it, and you had to work so hard for so little to to come your way. Yeah, I, I think the uh, the first time that I watched it, after I watched it all the way through, and I was thinking back on it, I was the first thing I thought was this is a fantastic performance from Robert Pattinson, mm -hmm. and the second thing I thought was. I just realized Robert Pattinson is the villain of this film. <laughs> uh, we've been following him, so it didn't occur to me. But everything bad that befalls anyone in this film happens as a result of their connection to him. Uh, he is the downfall for nearly everyone who gets involved in anything, including his brother. I mean, yeah. arguably, the worst mistake made in the film is that he pulled his brother out of therapy and and dragged him into this, you know, or maybe back into or into this life of crime. And uh, and then every decision that he makes that he thinks is helping his brother ends up just damning another person to some other sort of punishment as a result. His relationship with uh, Jennifer Jason Lee, who you know, he's clearly just using for her family's wealth or what he perceives to be like uh, this this access to money they can have if he has some sort of 
um, friendship or romantic relationship with her. And then you see, you know, as soon as that becomes a, a roadblock, he's apologizing to other people for her not <laughs> granting him. And they, I think in this case, like the bell bondsman, like access to her, her mom's wealth. There's also this kind of uncomfortable sequence with an underage girl. Uh, and they, they make the, the age like, in the, the, the film, they, they sort of have this dialogue exchange as far as like, oh, you know, you look older or look, you know, and not, not age appropriate in the slightest, but it's not even played like, oh, this guy's like a creep sexually. He just starts to make out with her because his face appears on screen. And it's like, how do I get her not to look at the TV? Now I'm going to start kissing this teenage girl. <laughs> and so like, and I, that's what I meant was the, the film's kind of sweeps you up in this, this guy's like problem solving skills, but all of the way he solves them is to do something horrible further to do something that you would never want to do to fix that other horrible thing that he did. Yeah, no, for sure. This movie reminds me of like, if an Elmore Leonard novel was about someone who was nowhere near as smart as an Elmore Leonard character mm, tends yeah. to be. Yeah. Maybe a guy who like read like half of one of his novels once. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, I kind of liked that. You know, that was cool. Um, yeah. I just, uh, I, I'm not surprised that this was so, I don't want to say like it was spoken of with like great reverence because I think it was just like it was, you know, it's a little indie film and it, it had maybe to some a surprising performance from from Pattons. And I was a big fan of uh, The Rover, which came out about five years ago. Right. And uh, so it's like, you know, I could see a lot of people being like, oh, this is the first time like, uh, oh, he's I'm treating him as an actor uh, as opposed to just like some sort of heartthrob. But it's it is one that I would probably be somewhat cautious and recommending to what I would call like just normal folk who are just like, Oh, just can just recommend a movie to me because I, I used to work, you know, long, long time ago at a video store. And there would be, I remember there would be some movies that as a teenager, I would just be like, well, that's just a good movie. Like just, you can't deny that's just a good movie. I was not like keyed into people's taste when I would just like recommend things. And I remember having an experience with an older guy who liked crime movies and he liked, uh, like, you know, the Godfather, uh, or even Goodfellas. And I remember recommending Miller's Crossing to him and he came back and was like, that was horrible. And, and to me, I was just like, well, if you like one, how can you not the, like the other? But there was just a certain type of character that he was willing to follow. And even if the, like the same characters were involved, like in these like, you know, criminal, this sort of line of work, it was how they sort of carried themselves that he deemed like, was that worth my time following him? And I could see some people being completely turned off by, uh, Pattinson's goals or how he carries himself in a life of crime where they would say like, Oh, that some, that guy's indecent, but the characters in the Godfather, that was about family and like honor. And like, there's an expectation of like, that's how business is done here. I think that would, it would be, I could certainly see it being beneath some mainstream audiences to want to hang out with these people for too long. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, all those other movies operate within a, a specific code, like you said. And in this movie, the code is sort of opportunism of the moment. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a perfect analogy to bring up uh, Miller's Crossing because the character of Tom Regan is even asked in the film at one point. I think it's um, uh, it's Albert Finney's character. He says, why did you do that? And it's sort of representative of why did you make any of these decisions? And I think he says, I don't know. Do you know why you do things? And I was like, that that blew me away when I saw it. And then in, in, now that you mention it, like watching this movie, it's like, oh, yeah, this guy had no idea that he was going to do any of those things until they were done. Yeah, and now, now we just deal with the fallout. Yeah. He's, and he's certainly capable of anything you can see, like, because he's just um, I, I think like probably with a lot of uh, people that that did not have the best uh, home life. And I think you, you can glean that from the, the characters in this relationship they have between each other that they they've sort of have walled off that, that they have to like look out this sort of brotherhood that they have but uh the like the mother character is is seen as someone who could like drive a wedge between them and like does not understand trying to keep her out you could definitely see how some people would be pushed to that but they're they're pushed to uh looking out for each other exclusively <laughs> like and with complete disregard to the interest of like pretty much any other like any other person is not treated as a human being like that because they're just not, you know, it's not, not my brother. So I don't care what happens to you. And I think that's like you said, when you get to the end of it, you're like, wow, that, what, what a, what a scumbag, like <laughs> maybe a good brother or, or not, as you said, he's the one that sort of brings him into this situation. But, um, yeah, just, just not someone to want to hang out with. Not like Jack Lemmon, which is right. our second film. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's funny since I've become such a huge fan of the good place, I've tend to filter every character through, 
some of the things they talk about in that series about ethics and and uh, utilitarianism is basically the sort of the uh, the enemy in this movie because that's exactly how Robert Pattinson's character thinks is he has one specific task that needs to be accomplished and whatever has to fall by the wayside in order for him to get that so be it you know uh, he didn't have a problem not only making out with a, an underage girl but also ultimately uh, in some ways ruining her life the way that her, her character goes out of the story. Uh, there's there's a pretty clear inclination that it's not going to be good for her, and uh, and then when you and they cut back to him watching it happen, and it's not that he's not upset at all, but it seems more he's upset at the framework of what he now has to deal with as a result of yes. having lost his ride. <laughs> yeah, he is. He's like a very frustrated like uh, middle manager for this like life as a fugitive. <laughs> like if everyone every, everyone else could just like do their functions that he sort of assigns them then everything would just go smoothly and it's not really taking any responsibility himself for like what he's causing. It's just, everyone else is just not, they're not reading the lines that he's sort of giving them or the parts to play. Yeah. And in a way I keep bringing up the Sisyphus thing because I think uh, there's this interesting, the way that the movie ends, I won't go into huge detail, but the way that the movie ends for the brother, Nick um, in some ways echoes the opening moments of the story. It's obviously a slightly better circumstance for him than the opening, but it echoes it to the degree that I almost feel like this movie could play on an endless loop mm, where yeah. the end of the movie feeds right back into the beginning. Mm-hmm. And we're watching a cycle that Connie is going to be caught in forever. Robert Pattinson's character, like this is his purgatory forever. He's going to make the wrong decision. And as a result, this is what will keep happening to them because he never seems to learn from anything that he does in this movie. Cause like you said, he never looks ahead of the next decision that needs to be made. I think that's a good way to, to finish that. I like that sort of bookend our own little conversation on it. And plus, I'm just excited to get to uh, Good Neighbor <laughs> Sam. Because after, <laughs> after, after Good Time, um, I think a lot of people could justify what Jack Lemmon uh, does as far as how he involves himself in uh, what's initially – I don't know if I want to call it a little white lie because there's a lot of money at stake. But if you put $15 million in this sort of contrived – sitcomish plot in front of a man where he can he can help out his wife's friend and uh their new neighbor um i think most people could say like okay yeah just say you're you're the husband and this woman gets her inheritance and it's i think the important thing with that to me i don't know if you felt the same way was um when this plot is uh, conceived by these these three people in this film uh it's not until much later that there's any money there's a cut, like sort of like a manager or agent's fee offered to Jack Lemon. I think that probably skews uh, our rooting interest a little bit more for the character that he's not initially just out for himself. He is he is genuinely trying to do a favor, and he's like oftentimes very put out by what he's having to do uh, to to fulfill that promise. Yeah, and I mean, also, I feel like it goes a long way that it was – it's not a secret he's keeping from his wife. It's actually something that his wife encouraged him to become mm-hmm. involved in. Um, if this were a movie where he met some woman and had to pretend to be her wife and his wife didn't know about it, it immediately <laughs> goes off the scale, unlikable, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Um, now, this is uh, – I'll just admit, this is a this is a pretty long comedy. or It, it felt long to me because there were a couple of oh. times where, unlike Good Time, where I was like pausing it and was like, what? Now, what are we doing now? Like, um, it's just – it's about two hours and ten minutes long. So I don't know if that fits in like the Judd Apatow length that maybe some people will be used to, but it's a little – it sags a little bit for me. Yeah, I, I felt the length too. It's funny. I was actually watching it with my mother-in-law. She's in town and she was just like – that at that time, this is what it was. You know, when you went and saw a, a movie, especially, I guess what they call the A picture, they were all this long, whether it was a, you know, I mean, except for maybe Westerns, which tend to uh, move along pretty quickly. She said the dramas, the comedies, everything was like two hours long. And um, so, but I, I completely agree with you. This is a movie that I could have seen. It could easily have come in at 90, 95 minutes and there wouldn't be a lot. I was shocked when, when we first basically met the friend and found out that she was getting the 15 million. I paused. It was 35 minutes into the film. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a lot of setup to say that, uh, Jack Lemon's character here is not really that satisfied where with where he is, uh, primarily professionally. I don't think his his home life, like you said, with the, the wife, like being so directly involved in this uh, little plot of theirs. I don't think we're meant to say like his home life is bad, but he's just sort of unsatisfied, uh, just where he, he is in life. He's not, uh, his, his boss, uh, doesn't know his name. Uh, he, he complains about the commute to work. Uh, he looks at <laughs> everyone as sheep, like literally, like they, they'll <laughs> cut back and you have sheep and like, you know, hats and suits. 
Um, so yeah, this is like, you know, a very, if your uh, office space would be a good comparison where it's, it's a guy that's just like not only dissatisfied, but just is like, like the entire culture to him is just like one big joke about like what people put themselves through just so they can get back home. And there's an odd, I, I don't know if it fully connects, but like, uh, I thought they were going to do more with it than just have this like contraption make like obnoxious sounds like later in the film, but the this guy like has an interest in like, these. This very strange, the one that we see. This very strange invention of his. Yes, uh, I don't know how. How would you describe it as far as what what well, this thing I, is? It's funny that you said that. I was thinking it's literally it's like Chekhov's junk machine. Like <laughs> when it was introduced, I was like, this has got to pay off in a big way later in the story. Right. But yeah, it's he said he makes their like uh found he said, called it found sculptures where he just sort of solders garbage together. <laughs> and when you first see it, it's still. So I think it's literally just a sculpture. Mm-hmm. And then, I, I don't know, after 10 or 15 more minutes, he flips a switch or something, and then like a a, a, ra- a record player starts playing, and the whole thing starts like vibrating and pumping out smoke, and there's a little man, like a little figure saluting. It's like, a, it's like the most weird sort of mechanical Rube Goldberg machine mm. that you've ever seen. Um, and they even hint at him having sort of smaller ones that, like at his desk at work as well, you know, like things that he's soldered together. So, yeah, I was with you. I thought there's going to be some kind of payoff for this thing, some sort of revelation, because it just seems like so much time and effort to have been put in for what would boil down to like a gag, you know? Yeah, like I, I had the expectation that's like, OK, this guy has got uh, a talent a talent set or some sort of passion that's so far removed from uh, advertising uh, that, that, you know, he wants to, like he would be encouraged that if he had an out, that's, that's where he would want to spend his time and his, his money. Uh, But for the most part, it's just like a, (laughs) like a home alone trap for himself in his backyard. (laughs) Eventually when he's trying to, because they, uh, you know, he has to pose as the, the neighbor's husband because she's got this very, very, very contrived thing where um, her inheritance is tied to uh, if she's uh, happily married. And I guess her, her <laughs> the family attorneys, these these men that come in suits are like, well, we could probably swing that. They're not technically divorced, so that means she's still married. So she's still good for for this. And the husband's out of the picture um, when the, the story starts and comes in much later, um, assuming that he wants, you know, a piece of the pie uh, and also just to have one more roadblock, very good time, like uh, for Jack Lemon to get around. Uh, probably... I think played more for uh, to be sort of titillating in the comedy sense later when he has to pose as Jack Lemmon's character and you have this strange like uh, wife swap thing, this competition between these these two men that that happens like pretty late, pretty late in the game in this film. Yeah, well, I mean, especially like you said, because it's two hours and ten minutes long, it, it's it feels like it comes far later than you expect that it uh, is going to happen. Um, I, I We talked earlier about the idea of how there's such a difference in the um, the events, the culminating events. The, the, they're criminals in the first film. And I feel like maybe what happens in the second film only rises to the level of like a scheme. I think that's maybe the appropriate word. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, the thing that was funny about it while I was watching is I was like, I just realized off the top of my head, Jack Lemon loves himself a scheme. Uh, I was thinking of like, <laughs> The first ones I thought of were like the comedies, you know, some mm-hmm. like it hot as a scheme, mm-hmm. the fortune cookies, a scheme. But then I thought even in his dramas, like Save the Tiger, mm-hmm. he's going to set fire to his store and cash in on the money. Glengarry Glenn Ross, you know, the the whole thing about the place being robbed. You know, there's the scheme in that. And I started thinking, I'm like, wow, he's really drawn to the scheme, isn't he? There's an every man quality to him, but specifically to, I guess, how <laughs> Lemon deals with tension on, on screen. Like, cause mm-hmm. I, I don't think he ever overplays anything even in this one which you could go you could go really broad with this uh, uh when you get into the, the crazy contraptions and him having a run back and forth uh having another man that he's competing with um there's this uh, weird gag where he never has socks when he goes to work right and, and people, there's the comedy <laughs> drunk scene in public yeah and, where uh, he uh, my wife came in and uh thought she she came in late she wasn't watching this and it was after he purposely rolled himself down the the stairs in, in this like lobby and she's like oh he, i came in this he's fallen down i'm like no he's he's enjoying himself in a strange way <laughs> like <laughs> he's he's reveling in uh his early success but it's I, th- I feel like the most I got out of it was, you know, he wants he wants respect at work, uh, which you can I think everyone can can go through to a certain degree, um, 
And then when he, he gets that, when he basically has a, he, he wins the lottery in a different context, right? This woman's like, Hey, I'm going to get, if you, you help me out, I'm going to get 50 million. Uh, I'm really putting you and your wife out. You're doing me a great service. Uh, I'm going to make you a millionaire as well. I'm going to give you a million dollars. Um, when it gets, when it really like sort of sinks in that it's an actual possibility, cause he initially sort of waves it off like a million dollars. That's ridiculous. You know, you don't give me a million dollars when it sets in. He is, he totally is checked out. Like, so everything he aspired to, which is, you know, I want more responsibility. I want people to respect me at work. Um, when there's the possibility that he won't have to work anymore, like even the, uh, you know, it's, it's a plot point later in the film where, uh, strangely, the, the people that he works with have taken a picture of him and his fake wife and decide to use it for the marketing. Apparently you didn't have to run that past people at all. <laughs> like you're going <laughs> to plaster their face on billboards. Um, it's, you know, he's, he's checked out. He doesn't even know like what this, this big project that he's for to, to sell, uh, milk and dairy products. He's not even like checked to see what the end result of that is. And like at the start of the film, that would have been like, that would have been a version of him winning the lottery. But when money falls in his lap, it, you know, he becomes in a comedic way, he becomes totally consumed by like seeing this plot through. Well, I feel like that's another, that's one of the few things that the two movies have very clearly in common, which is both. Uh, both him and Robert Pattinson's character in some ways are trying to sort of do an end run around what you have to do to get mm -hmm. the American dream, you know? I mean, it's definitely much more palatable in Good Neighbor Sam because right. <laughs> your wife is encouraging you like, oh, she's an old friend of mine. Yeah, just plays her husband. And uh, there is a um, kind of a strange because it doesn't really fit with like the rest of the film, uh, the fantasy sequence where he talks himself basically about like what type of guy he is or could be. Uh, and I guess his like sort of, you know, uh, worst fantasies would be to have some sort of sexual encounter uh, with this other woman. Uh, but even in his fantasies, it is just like one big like rant slash lecture, one nightmare that he lives. Uh, and I, I do like the following sequence is him going to apologize for a nightmare he had. Like he has, to, he <laughs> feels like he has to go and apologize and say, you know, I would never cross the line. Not considering the fact that, you know, she's she's not sharing his dreams or nightmares. So um, I don't I think the hardest part I would have as far as recommending it to people is one, the length, but two. And I don't know if you feel this way. Like you mentioned some like hot, which I think, you know, I, I caught up with that, obviously, like decades after the fact. To me, that one still holds up. Like I, I laughed and I felt like all the times I need to laugh. And I, I think it's a great comedy. Uh, there There is just a different comedic pattern. I think to the, like these films and it's, it's probably just generational, even if you go like to the eighties or something like stuff just plays very different. And so I don't know if I gave this someone now uh, and they see this as a comedy, um, how much they would, they would glean from it. Cause I, I don't know, like, did you find yourself like laughing a lot at this or just sort of enjoying the, the, the con? It was, for me, it was all about Jack Lemmon's performance. This is the kind of movie that I can fully say, uh, without Jack Lemmon, I don't know that I would have stuck around, stuck around, let alone enjoyed it. Um, you're right. The rhythm of it is, like I said, aside from the two hours and 10 minutes long, um, the rhythm of it is such that you're pretty much ahead of the curve on almost every story beat to the point that there's not any surprise. So if you don't have the surprise, then the, the jokes are going to have to deliver. And most of the jokes themselves don't really land. And the way you know that is because, or at least for me, Jack Lemmon's the only one whose presence I'm really um, enthralled by, like mm. I'm having a, a good time with. Um, but so much of what he was doing wasn't dependent on the writing of the jokes or anything like that. Like one of my favorite points was literally just when he was killing time before he could go back to see his wife and they were sort of dancing in the living room. Mm -hmm. And he was very clearly, he was sort of supposed to be having a good time, but was very clearly trying to dance very far away from her and <laughs> right. sort of the elaborate nature <laughs> of the dance he was doing to try and keep her at distance. I, th I found very funny. But I do think that uh, most of what I took away from it that I really enjoyed is Lemon finding a way to ground even the most absurd uh, and over-the-top moments. So I feel like anybody else in that in that film, this would have felt like a terribly sort of dated film. It's mm. only because Lemon is so believable to me. Um, he does this thing in almost all the movies now that I think about it, and I wonder, is it something that people wrote because they recognized Lemon could do it so well, or is it something he brought to it? Which is, you know how he does that... Um, quietly talks to himself out of frustration mm -hmm. when something's going wrong and he does it so well. And I mean, not that that's, he's the only person that's done it, but I think of so many movies 
where there's a scene of him sort of under his breath muttering in exasperated fashion about whatever's happening around him. And it's such a, a hackneyed bit, the idea of having to get information across by just having someone say it mm-hmm. to himself. But he's so good at it that I feel like maybe that's why they do it because they know he can pull it off. That's a really good point because I feel like 75% of like the grumpy old men – saga is both of him <laughs> and Walter Matthau doing exactly that. Like, you know, yeah. Oh, for sure. Snapping each other and then under their breath, you know, muttering something even more offensive. Yeah. But I had never considered it. But yeah. Cause with lemon, I mean, it's like a very stagey sort of theatrical thing to do. Right. But with him, I've, I actually just totally buy into it. It's like, Oh, that, that character would, that's how he would vent his frustrations because he does have that. He has a, he brings a certain, smallness to very broad big characters which i Mm -hmm. I really appreciate like he he somehow grounds them in that everyman quality when really like usually what they find themselves involved with is fairly fairly ridiculous in particular here like a pretty pretty ridiculous situation that (laughs) oftentimes most people don't question like i mean even having like edward g robinson as like this (laughs) this, like badass dairy man who's like obsessed with like the uh, purity of the people that are going to be involved or presenting his product so much. So there's a sequence with uh, his wife um, where she's talking to lemon uh, and trying to, to get his fake wife, you know, involved in something. Uh, and he, you know, he's trying to, to put a stop to that by saying like, Oh, I think that's her like church bingo committee night. And she's like, I, uh, you know, I'm appalled by gambling. And he's like, no, no, no. They just play for jelly beans. Like, I mean, you're so that I did get a little bit of humor out of Edward G. Robinson playing such a stick in the mud. <laughs> oh yes. This. No, for sure. I mean, you know, we, you know, we all know him from little Caesar, you know right. what I mean? Like he has that, that gangster cliche. So yeah, it, it was really fun sort of, um, turn on the expectation. And one of the things uh, like, and maybe this just says something to me about my sort of modern sensibility in the film is I was for certain at the end in the third act when he has to go to a sort of a hotel of ill repute to rent a room in order to, you know, cover up the final billboard. I was for certain what we were going to find out somehow is that this squeaky clean guy mm. who was so obsessed turns out he was going to be shady as the day is long. Right. And that was mm-hmm. going to be the big twist is this guy who only wanted to work with a family man was going to turn out to be a shady character himself, um, which maybe t- maybe says something about the, you know, my my mind going to a more modern sensibility. Mm-hmm. But like I was for sure that that's where the movie was headed just because like who hires Edward G. Robinson for one five minute scene in the opening of the film and then doesn't do anything else with him, you know? So I was assuming there was going to be some sort of a big payoff. Yeah. And that may have, you know, been, uh, may have been a cleaner <laughs> way to bring all those threads together. Uh, instead, I believe, they get out of that mix, which, uh, you know, for that to be such a seedy hotel, man, it's got a pretty elaborate, like, elevator staircase, like, <laughs> lobby. I was like, it, yeah, you know, it what, looks what like something out of an Argento film. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's yet again, one more, one more lie. They, they say he's some sort of, some sort of great, I don't know if it's like a, uh, you know, 1960s version of like Banksy, where it's like, you know, a great artist has come to deface something on your property and they're like, oh, well, sorry, you know, we didn't know. Um, yeah, that's like really, you know, by the time you get to the end, um, I, I, I didn't like that there's, there's sort of a real late in the game, uh, I guess twist with the wife where she's just like, you know what? We don't need all this money. You've changed as a human being. I'm thinking, I don't really think he's changed that much as far as like, you know, I mentioned he has that fantasy, uh, an actual dream of, uh, coming on to this other woman. Um, I just feel like, he he's he's been put in the fix where he's put in that much work. It probably put in much more work in this than he ever has at his actual day job. That to not see it through <laughs> would be like just one more failure that he just couldn't he couldn't live with. Yeah. Well, and also it, we didn't really get any sense of her hesitation throughout the movie, aside from one moment where she was ma- mad that he showed up late for dinner. We never really got any sense of her feeling like she was being negatively affected. She was pretty supportive of the whole endeavor mm-hmm. up until the moment that she said, I don't, you know, I don't like where mm-hmm. this is headed. Yeah. And that might be like, you know, like going back at that point, you you have to have one, uh, one cast member, uh, speak for like the audience. It's like, you know, someone should say, Hey, what you're doing here is wrong. But instead I think it just, <laughs> it just comes across as like, Oh, the wife has to be the one to like, uh, to, to nag him at some point. Cause for the most, most part, I actually enjoy that. She's the one like 
putting him through the ringer. But like both these women are really just making this guy's uh, life uh, incredibly difficult uh, to where it, it is like a, a drug. It becomes like an adrenaline rush for him just to just to see it through. Like, right. so, I mean, not not in a, uh, you know, I want to be clear, not in like a good time. Like, I don't, I don't want to say like, you know, exactly the same right. thing. But uh, it was kind of cool to watch these two movies together and try to like make those connections. Yeah. And I, like I said, I was surprised though. We didn't, you know, we didn't do it with this intent that there were some interesting connections. Like we said, the, both of them have sort of schemes that have profitable ends, neither of which go the way that they planned. And there's a lot of, uh, mistaken identity play in this, you know, whether it's the, in, in good times, there was the masks for the bank robbery and then him actually literally smuggling the wrong guy out of the <laughs> hospital. Um, and then of course, you know, the, the, uh, mistaken identity is on the surface in the in the other one, you know, so it's it's making itself very clear. Um, I did think it was really funny. I don't know how you felt about this, but there's a, a huge plot point, a huge necessary plot point in Good Neighbor Sam about the fact that he has to be a clean living family man. Right. So he's got kids and he's got a wife and three minutes into the movie, they <laughs> ship his kids off on a bus and we never see them again until the last minute and a half of the movie. I, it's so funny. It's like, he has to be a clean living family man, but this is a sex romp. So we can't mm-hmm. have any children around. So yeah. bust them right out of here. Yeah. Just enough so that he has pictures of them in his wallet, but they actually like, they will not be uh, privy to any of the events of this film because yeah. how do you explain that to those small children? Like dad's sleeping next door and trying, and now there's another man in the house as well. And we're going to call him by your dad's name um my my wife came in and was actually like brought that up and i'm like "Ah, they've they've been gone since like the (laughs) minute three like they just get in a car and uh now now we get to have a little bit of fun um i don't know if you're you know a family man but uh i'm pretty much on the record on almost every podcast that i i hate children so i was like this is the world we should live in where it's like (laughs) you have the kids and you're able to be like okay now i have some business to attend to they just go off with the grandparents and then they're not mentioned until the uh almost it's time for the credits to roll yeah, the, the the dapperly dressed grandma comes in, gives him a bit of a needling about his statue, and then basically just takes the kids off their hands whenever they want. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of people have. It seems like a lot of people have time on their hands in this movie. You know, you have uh, the uh, the the cousins uh, that uh, are spying on this woman, like hoping that she's not happily married. So somehow the the inheritance will fall to them, and the uh, you know the world's worst uh, private investigator. <laughs> who, you know, his his little truck he has set up, which is, you know, called out from pretty much minute one. And then even when he confronts Lemon, uh, he has the story totally wrong as far as like the, the pictures he's taken of him switching between houses. He just <laughs> I guess he goes with the easiest answer is like, oh, you're having an affair with the, the cute blonde next door, which is Lemon's actual wife. Yeah, and literally, it's uh, there's the the bit with him looking at the binoculars through the holes in the O's yeah. on the logo outside of the. It's that's literally a gag in a Wallace and Gromit cartoon. And I remember <laughs> when that happened, I was like, "You can't get more cartoonish than this." <laughs> and then minutes later, he tripped on a duck and slammed into a noise machine. I was like, "Okay, I guess you can get cartoonish." Yep. That is, uh, you know, it's it's strange to say that that's there's probably like. Um, you know, even though with good time having like a uh, a fight actually happen in like <laughs> an amusement park, uh, we have like a miniature version of that with the duck causing Lemon to just fall into this contraption that sets off the neighbors and the the PI to get his uh he has like a submarine like telescope <laughs> that comes up out of the top of the van to see what's going on. Yeah, out of a handle of a giant like cartoony looking vacuum cleaner. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, I think I I have to say just. Uh, my favorite thing about discussing Good Neighbor Sam is that we did not do a traditional here's the plot of this movie. And the sheer oddity that we have described thus far, um, just from what we just described, a cartoonish vacuum cleaner, um, binoculars, a guy stepping on a duck and slamming into a, a noise machine, uh, a guy pretending to have two – like all of the sequences that we've described, I feel like – People will probably go out and watch this movie more than any that you've described simply because they want to see what movie leads to all of the individual scenes that we have discussed and how that's possible. I think it's actually it's actually close to good time that way where it's like when you're in the middle of it, you're like, yeah, OK, <laughs> like this makes this makes sense. This is this is where we're at. Uh, the, the, this is the situation we find ourselves in. So, yeah, the, now we have this uh, shenanigan. I mean, the, the duck is introduced early on in a pretty strange way where it's like the neighbor 
returns him. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's really, yeah, it's Chekhov's duck in this case, right? Yeah. It's not the machine. It's Chekhov's duck. We should have known when we saw a duck in the first act that that duck was going to quack by the third act. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it's a good, uh, I, I guess, a good thing, like, if you're ever doing something sneaky, like, you know, if you are having some affair. I can't think of a movie where there's, like, a melodrama uh, like I, I don't remember in uh, Revolutionary Road, uh, there being a duck sequence that like outs <laughs> DiCaprio or Kate Winslet, but I think Sam Mendes could have learned a thing or two from this movie. Yeah. Would have improved well, it. It definitely seems like a plot that could have popped up on Big Love for sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of backyard running around yeah, in that one. Exactly, a whole lot of shenanigans. I mean, mm-hmm. they were all his wife, but still. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I like what you said there as far as like, if, you know, I assume people listening, uh, are not familiar with this one. Um, cause I, uh, we started working backwards from the premise of like, let's do something with Jack Lemon. And then we, we found something that, uh, you had not seen, uh, and I had not seen. Uh, so I do hope, you know, if any good comes out of this podcast, that it is that there will be a few more rentals on Amazon or iTunes or wherever where people, uh, check this one out. Uh, but I actually, I, I enjoyed both movies. Like I came away, um, for both of these being first time watches for me, I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, and uh, good neighbor Sam did not disappoint as far as being a nice palate cleanser, as far as the, you know the style and the tone for for a good time. Oh yeah, for sure. It's definitely yeah. It definitely is an amuse bouche. Uh, wait, no, that's the one that comes at the beginning. It's an aperitif. Man, <laughs> how about that for a faux pas, right? <laughs> I'll never live this down in the podcast world. Uh, I think you'll be fine. You know, I think you know if you, you said something, uh, you know, if you start talking about superhero movies or Star Wars or something, that would probably be more offensive. This this is fine. Yeah, you know, they're 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 probably like not even paying attention at this point. Uh, I hope they have made it this far because I want you to uh, tell people once again where they can find you. I think this has been a really fun conversation. So where can people, if they want to, you know, if you want and if you want to invite strangers onto your social media presence, if they want to interact with you, where can they find you? Yes. Well, I only interact with strangers, so try not to get to know me. Um, but yeah, at, at Twitter is the best place. Like I said, it's uh, CK, the letters CK, and then Vander K, V-A-N-D-E-R-K-A-A-Y. And from there, I pretty much keep track of everything that's going on. I've got another fiction book coming out probably late September, early October. And then next year, we have a really cool coffee table book called Spoiler Alert, which is basically sort of a, a satirical book that does – movie templates for 40 really popular movie genres. It sort of gives you like, here's how you find your title. Here's all the stock characters you would use. Here's your three-act structure sort of thing. Um, and so that's coming out next year. And then, like I said, Mascot TV, which I'm really excited about working over there, doing uh, trying to treat exploitation cinema with the respect it does not deserve. Well, thank you so much for, for coming. This is the first first time we've uh, talked uh, pretty much at all, other than briefly on, on Twitter. Uh, and I, I think this uh, came out really well. So I really appreciate you taking the time to do it. Yeah, no, I had a blast. I, I studied you intently in um, backlog of episodes. So. Oh, no. Uh, well, that was a huge waste of time, uh, so I apologize <laughs> for that.